Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. So today we are beginning a new series called Last Instructions. And we're talking about the last week that Jesus had on earth leading up to his death and resurrection. We're just a couple weeks away from Easter, and Easter is this center point in the gospel story. It's this central turning point in everything that God has been doing throughout scripture and leading to this time as he's about to make a new covenant between himself and all of humanity. And so today, we're going to be talking about this last week, and this was a last week that Jesus knew he was under incredible scrutiny. He was being watched closely by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the crowds, Everyone was talking about what Jesus had done, what he was doing, the way he taught, the way he spoke. And it was just drawing people into this kind of critical moment where tensions were high, people were wondering, people were concerned, wondering, what's this going to happen? What's going to happen if Jesus really is the Messiah? And this came at the culmination of three years of Jesus' public ministry as he's been traveling and teaching and talking about this new understanding of a relationship with God that the people hadn't heard before, hadn't experienced before. And so it leads to this time period as the Passover festival is coming up. This is one of the biggest festivals in Jerusalem in the area. And so Jerusalem would fill with pilgrims, people coming to mark the occasion of Passover in Jerusalem. And Jesus is being warned by his disciples, by people around him saying, if you go to Jerusalem the religious leaders, they're going to try to kill you. And Jesus knows this and he chooses to go anyways. And so even though next Sunday is Palm Sunday, we're going to start with Jesus's entry into Jerusalem today. And we're going to be looking in this series this week and next about how some of these teachings that Jesus gave leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we're not going to look at all of it. There's a lot that happened in this last week. And so we're going to look at some highlights and some themes and what we can learn for today as we prepare ourselves for Easter coming up. And so leading up to the Sunday before Passover begins, Jesus and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem and they come to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead and he gives them this instruction from Matthew 21. He says, go into the village over there and as soon as you enter, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks them what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. And so Jesus is demonstrating he knows what's going to happen. He knows when he sends his disciples what they're going to find, what they're going to bring. And so this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus knew this promise from their, their own Hebrew scriptures, knew this promise from Zechariah, and he follows it to make this point that as he is coming, he is coming as a king into Jerusalem, but not exactly the kind of king the people were expecting. But as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem, what happens, and we know this if you maybe you grew up in church or you've been around faith for a while, you know that the people respond with great joy. And it says, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And this is the way in ancient Israel, the way that you would welcome a king when they came back from a time of warfare, when the king had to lead the army and go and push back an invading nation, or they had to go and conquer some lands. 
when they came back, the, the messengers, the heralds would come and tell the people the report of what had happened, that your king has fought for you, your king has been triumphant. And the people would respond this way. This is the red carpet of the first century, that this is the way they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. And so the next verse tells us, Jesus was at the center of this procession, and all the people around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in highest heaven. And that cry, Hosanna, means a little more than just praise God. It had become a rallying cry of God, save us, of God, recognize us, God, be here with us. This is a cry that is both a triumph and a cry for God to be involved and to be present. And so these people, they're looking at Jesus and they had all kinds of different expectations about who Jesus is and what he was coming to do and why he was there. And one of the things that we have to recognize is they all had different perspectives. Some people thought that Jesus was coming to be a literal king, to take the throne of Jerusalem and of of Israel, to somehow gain independence from Rome. And so many people in the crowd, and even some or all of Jesus' disciples, expected the Messiah to restore Israel to the independence they had during the time of King David. They're thinking back actually to a time period a thousand years earlier that is regarded in their history as the high point, the highest point of their independence as a nation. And if you want to dive into that, we're not going to dive into why they desired that today, but if you go on our YouTube channel and you head back to January 10th, we did a message that dived into why they had this perspective about Jesus. And so what Jesus does when he enters into Jerusalem is he heads for the temple. And the temple was the epicenter of Jerusalem. It was the most important place, the most important building. And if you were coming to Jerusalem to see Jerusalem, the first place you would go was the temple. And in our last series on justice, we talked about a time period when Jesus came and he entered the temple and he cleared it. And we're going to come back to this story because when we looked at it a couple weeks ago, we didn't talk about what happened after this. And so Jesus comes, he enters the temple And he begins to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And then he declares to everyone, he says, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now these money changers and animal sellers, they had created a very lucrative racket in the temple courtyard, in the court of the Gentiles, where if you had come, they wouldn't permit you to bring your own money to give as a donation at the temple. You would have to exchange it for the the temple currency. And so they could inflate the exchange rate and pillage more money from you to be able to force you, if you wanted to be a faithful Jew and make a donation at the temple, you would have to exchange your money. And you weren't permitted to bring your own animals to offer as a sacrifice if it was one of the times when you were coming to offer a sacrifice. You had to buy their animals at an inflated markup. In fact, this whole court of money changers and animal salesmen was a way of extorting the people to gain great wealth. And the historians that write about this time period, Josephus being one of them, writes about these four families that had amassed an extraordinary amount of wealth by profiting off of how they were essentially shaking down faithful people for money as they came to the temple. And so Jesus kicks them out. And then what Jesus does next is he sets up and he takes time there. And what it says is he he calls for the blind and the lame come to him in the temple and Jesus heals them. 
And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. Jesus is restoring the temple to what it was meant to be, to be this place of them actually coming to encounter God. Jesus using this as a time to heal people that were needing healing. And it says even the children are excited and they're praising Jesus for what he is doing. But the leaders... The leaders see all this happening and they respond. It says this, the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? They're praising Jesus. He's like, are you allowing them to worship you? And Jesus says, yes. Haven't you read in the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Now, when Jesus makes this declaration, when he makes this statement that he is allowing children to praise him, he is allowing them to treat him as God because Jesus is God himself stepped into the world. Now, notice something about their response. There's something missing from their response when they come to Jesus and say, you know, what's going on? Don't you see what's going on? Do you hear what these children are saying? The religious leaders cannot be angry at Jesus for clearing the temple because they should have been the ones to prevent the money changers and the animal salespeople from happening in the temple. They should have been the ones to kick out the money changers and say, no, no, that's unjust. That's not what we do here. But they were the ones profiting off of it. And so notice their criticism of Jesus is not, oh, you kicked out these people that were making us money because they knew they shouldn't have been making money off the people. But it says this, that all they can find is, well, but these children are praising you and we shouldn't let that happen. And Jesus shuts that down. And this sets up the tone for what Jesus' encounters are going to be with the religious leaders through this last week. And much of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they talk about the last week, spend a good amount of time talking about this conflict that's brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in fact, the very next day, Jesus has even more encounters with them at the temple. And Jesus starts to speak and to teach, and he begins to speak to them in parables. And so when Jesus speaks in a parable, he's telling the people a story to make a point. And why stories are so powerful is because when you teach something in a story, you can kind of disarm someone's defenses, and you kind of invite them to look at the story and say, well, who am I in this story? Who am I in these characters? Which one do I identify with? And what's the point that's being taught? And so it's this way of teaching something without someone realizing they're trying to be taught something. And so one of the parables that Jesus tells these religious leaders as they're challenging him about his authority is he tells them a parable about a vineyard. And I'm going to read this parable from Matthew 21. And Jesus says this, he says, Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. And then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop, his payment for leasing this vineyard that he built to these farmers. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And so the landowner sent a larger group of servants to collect from, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son was coming, they said to another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. And so as Jesus is telling this story to the religious leaders, to the leading priests, 
Then he asks them a question. He says, knowing this story, knowing what I've unfolded and laid out in front of you, he follows it up with a question. He says, when the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to these farmers? What happens to these farmers when the owner who built this vineyard shows up and says, hey, now it's time for you to pay up? What do you think is going to happen? And so the religious leaders respond with what they know to be true based on this story. They say, well, the religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crops after each harvest. And so now this is the moment where Jesus has made them admit this is what's going to happen. And so then Jesus pulls to their own scriptures and he says this, haven't you read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the most important foundational piece of any building or structure. He says, this is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. And then Jesus gives an interpretation of this passage and he tells them, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce the proper fruit. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, you could, if we were there standing there, you could feel the tension in the conversation. Because at this moment, the leaders, the leading priests and the Pharisees, they hear this parable and they realize that Jesus is telling this against them. They're the wicked farmers. And Matthew tells us they wanted to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. See, they have this moment of realization that they are the tenant farmers. They're the ones who have been given something that was created by God. The temple, the responsibility to shepherd the people, the role of guiding and leading the people in their relationship with God. They had been given that, but they had used it for their own gain. The groups of servants that the the landowner sends in the parable refer to the prophets of their Hebrew scriptures, to people like Isaiah, who were sent with a message to lead the people, and they rejected them. They rejected the work of the prophets. And so now they're sitting there and they've realized that what Jesus has accused them of is killing the prophets of the past. He's accused them of rejecting the messages they came to bring. And he, what he's, he is accusing them of at the core is that they have failed in their responsibility to lead the people closer to God. And that's why Jesus makes that declaration in the verse before this, where he says, the kingdom of God will be given to a people who will produce much fruit. And he's not talking literal fruit. He's not talking about planting vineyards. He's talking about bearing the kingdom of God. He's talking about living out the mission and the mandate that God has given to humanity to make God known, to reveal who he is. And Later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's going to clarify this when he gives the disciples the mission, the mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations. But at this moment, at this moment when Jesus is talking there, the temple stands and it is being controlled by these religious leaders and leading priests. And what had happened is the temple was no longer the proper symbol of God's relationship with his people. In fact, the temple system and the religious leaders had become a barrier to the people's relationship with God. They had become a stumbling block in the way, preventing people from carrying out and living out their spiritual practices, preventing people from coming and having the relationship with God that God has always desired with his people. And so when Jesus, the day before, when he came and he cleared the temple, 
And throughout this week, all these encounters he has with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, what they all have in a common theme is that Jesus is dismantling the barriers that hindered people from a relationship with God. Jesus is trying to break down all the things that they have added on to their faith, all the things that they have have made stricter and more restrictive than what God had intended for it to be. And so it leads to these confrontations that Jesus has. And it leads to them getting angry. And it says that the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were scared of the crowds because the crowds were recognizing that Jesus was speaking in ways that was unlike their religious leaders. Jesus was speaking with authority and compassion, that he was speaking in a way that actually drew them into their relationship with God. And what's interesting to note is the religious leaders aren't actually scared of the crowds. What they're scared of is that if a riot happens, if there's a big disruption, if the people get so upset, who gets sent in? Well, a bunch of Roman centurions get sent in. A bunch of Roman soldiers from the occupying nation. Right now in this time period, the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin were given an incredible amount of latitude under Rome. In fact, they had a unique privileged place under the way that Rome typically controlled the nations that it had conquered. They had freedom to govern themselves and to have their own kind of internal autonomy, but it was hanging by a thread. And anytime the peace was disrupted, the response of Rome would be, all right, send in the soldiers, clean it up, mop them up, quell this riot, quell whatever it is, and then we won't let you have the freedom you had before. And so the religious leaders are more scared of Rome than the people. But over this last week, over all the conversations that Jesus has with the religious leaders that are leading up to the tensions growing higher and higher in Jerusalem, we can often sometimes read this and just see an antagonistic relationship. We can just see the anger that is happening under the surface. But there's a passage that I want to draw us to, and this is in Matthew 23. And this is a time period where Jesus is teaching later in the week, still at the temple, and he makes this declaration about his own intention and his own attitude to what is happening right now. And Jesus says this to the religious leaders, to the crowds, to the disciples, to everyone around him. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings but you wouldn't let me. Jesus is making this declaration that he is not there trying to start a war. He is not there trying to start a battle. He's not there just to debate and to try and and uproot and overturn everything just for the sake of uprooting it. Jesus is there because he wants, he has such great compassion over Jerusalem. And when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he doesn't mean just the city. He is referring to all of their people who are led by the leaders in Jerusalem, by the temple system that is centered in Jerusalem. And he says, when he says, I want to gather your children together, the people hearing that would have heard him right away associated it with the children of Abram, the children of Israel, that all of their people who look to God as their God. Jesus saying, how often I wanted to gather you together, but you wouldn't let me. Jesus is pointing out the way that he has been rejected by those in authority, those who had the ability to lead the people to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus says one more. He says, and now 
Look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now house, when Jesus says house here, the crowd would have heard multiple things in that statement. He's not just talking about their individual dwelling. He would be talking about like the house of David, the dynasty of kings that had been started a thousand years later. Or they would look at that and say, well, maybe he's talking about the temple, which was referred to as God's house among his people. And Jesus makes this declaration, your house is abandoned and desolate. And something to remember is that this is the second temple that is standing in Jerusalem at this time. This is the temple that was built by Ezra at the end of the second exile. And something to note about this temple compared to the one that was built when Solomon was the king is when the temple was dedicated under Solomon, there was this great event where they said the glory of God fell upon the people and inhabited the temple. They said it was so thick, this, this cloud that descended upon the temple that, that you couldn't see anything around you. And it was this remarkable occasion where they said, look, God is making his home among his people. But that event never happened in the second temple. When the second temple was built, they dedicated it, but there was no presence and glory of God that descended upon the second temple. It was almost as if God had said, you know, you have built this but it is not where I inhabit any longer. And Jesus repeats this when he says, your house is abandoned and desolate. You will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Jesus says that, he is referring to himself. If you do not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God himself stepped into the world, the anointed one who has come to lead people back into a deeper relationship with God, We will not see him. We will not recognize him. And so even in this, as Jesus is expressing his grief and his concern over the people, his desire to draw them together, that protective image of a hen and her chicks, Jesus is grieving over what Jerusalem has become and what he knows will happen. Now, the purpose of this temple was to draw people in to draw people to be a representation of God amongst his people. But what had happened in the centuries leading up to this point in time is the temple had become more of a barrier to God than a pathway to God. And that's what we see in all these, these conversations that Jesus has with the religious leaders. He is trying to dismantle and break down the barriers between God and humanity. And so I want to wrap us up by going to the very beginning of John's gospel. When, because before Jesus was born, Mary's cousin Elizabeth has a child. And that child grows up to become John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has this ministry of where he is calling people to repent, calling people to turn from their ways and turn to God. And John the Baptist's purpose is to announce that the Messiah is coming. And so if we rewind the clock three years, we rewind the clock to before Jesus' ministry has even begun, before the Holy Spirit has come and anointed Jesus at his baptism, John the Baptist has already been speaking and traveling and calling people to recognize that God is about to do something. And John begins his gospel with this description of what's happening. It says this, this was John's testimony, not the John who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? 
And John the Baptist came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. And they said, well, are you Ezra? Are, 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 are you, um, not Ezra, Elijah. Are you Elijah who's come back? And he goes, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not Elijah returning. And they say, well, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. But John replies with the words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. And if we recognize that, clear the way. What did Jesus do when he entered the temple? He cleared the way. He removed the barriers that were preventing people from coming to worship God. And so whenever I see this, whenever I look at the way that Jesus clears the temple, or I look at what John the Baptist says here, I find myself asking, what is it that we need to clear away? What are the things that we have added on that makes it harder for people to follow Jesus. You know, us living today, we have nearly 2,000 years of church history and tradition behind us. And if we look at our history, there are times when we can point at the church, and I'm speaking inclusively that we are part of the church that has existed for nearly 2,000 years. There are times when the church has added on things that have made it more difficult for people to come into a relationship with God. And even today, there are things that we tack on. We say, oh, you, you, you've given your, you've put your trust in Jesus. You've come to faith in him. Well, now you need to act this way. Now you need to behave this way. Now you need to do this. Now you need to vote this way. Now you need to care about these political things, but not care about those political things. And there's all these things that have been added and piled on to what it means to follow Jesus. And it leaves me wondering, what are the things that we need to clear away and get rid of? so that we can come back to what Jesus truly came to do? What do we need to get rid of in our own lives or in our teaching, in our practices? What do we have to let go of so that we can actually see Jesus at work in our lives and the lives of people around us? And that is a question that can be deeply disconcerting to lean into. Because some of the things that we grew up learning. If you grew up in the church, some of the things we grew up, we realized later on in our lives, actually, you know, we weren't taught exactly right. There's, and also, it's even in, in ways, Nikki and I have spoken about this with, with trying to teach faith to our own children. How do we teach our kids about Jesus in a way that they don't have to unlearn as much later on? And, and it's difficult to wrestle with those things to say, you know, there's, you know, the Bible is not G-rated at all, not even close. And so when your kid asks you a question, well, what about that? What about when Samson had to kill hundreds of people? It's like, yeah, we got to deal with that. But do we give some sort of simple answer that gives an imperfect picture of God? And so those are the difficult things that we as followers of Jesus have to still wrestle with today at whatever age we are, however long we've followed Jesus with. What are the things we have added on that we need to clear away? so that we can make this path to Jesus open. What's that going to take? And I'm not going to give you answers on that today, because that's something that we have to wrestle with together as a community of faith. And so maybe this is something to have a conversation with, with a friend, you know, with a family member. You, know, you want to send me an email, we'll set up a Zoom call, and we can chat about this more. But this is a place where each one of us has to look at our own faith, our own walk with Jesus, and say, what is the thing that I have to let go of? What are the things that have to be cleared away? So that as we come to Easter, as we come to recognizing what Jesus did to accomplish this new covenant and new relationship with God, 
What do we need to let go of so that we can experience that fully this year? Let me just close with prayer. God, thank you that you came. God, thank you that you came and you endured all of these difficult conversations. And we know that the conversations we have recorded in Scripture are a small fraction of what you had to experience and teach and endure from the religious leaders of your day. And so, Lord, as we come to Easter, would you be doing a work in our hearts, helping us to clear this path, to recognize what may be holding us back or the things we've added on as baggage onto following you? Would you help us recognize those things and be able to release and let go of them so that we can see you more? In your name we pray. Amen. So folks, that brings our online service to a close for today. Next week, we are going to continue this series called Last Instructions, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' last evening that he had with his closest group, his disciples. So folks, I hope to see you online next week, and make sure to check your email and uh, wait, see. Likely, I think we're going to start in person next Sunday. So now that I've said it, I guess now we have to do it. All right then, here we go. Next Sunday, we're going to be in person. I hope you have a great Sunday, and uh, see you next week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.